0: Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. That's all right. All right. Well, um, if you guys would go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, you could also turn to Exodus 25 and keep a finger there uh, or a bookmark there because uh, we're going to be referencing that quite a bit this, uh, this week. Um, you know, we're currently working our way through Hebrews, uh, which is sort of a comparison of Jesus and a lot of the, uh, major Old Testament figures. Um, the last week we started a section where we were comparing Jesus with the Mosaic covenant. Uh, this week we're continuing that kind of mini series within the series. Uh, and we're going to be in chapter nine verses one through 10. So this is Jesus is greater than the Mosaic covenant part two. Um, And in this part two, we're going to focus for a little bit on this Old Covenant ministry. We're going to focus on this Old Covenant ministry. And that's broken down into three parts. There's the tabernacle and everything that's in the tabernacle, or at least some of the major furnishings in the tabernacle. Then we're going to take a look at the Old Covenant ministry, and then we're going to close it out by focusing on the fact that all of that is just a symbol. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll get going here. Heavenly Father, God, we praise You, again, for who You are. We praise You for being the perfect Father for us, and a good, good, and loving Father. Lord, as we dig into Your Word, I pray that You will show us how we are not like You. Help us to surrender our lives to You so that we can become more like You, so that we can glorify You and, and build Your kingdom here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now. One last thing before I get started, I'm going to be showing a couple of pictures this morning. Um, so just to give credit where it is due, uh, these pictures were accessed through Biblia.com, and they are owned by Logo, uh, Logos Bible Software. Um, just want to make sure I uh, put that out there, and you know I'm not taking credit for these pictures on my own. Um, so in Hebrews chapter nine, starting in verse one, it says, "Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was set up. A tabernacle was set up." And in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. So here he's talking about this first covenant. And he says there was a regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. Now remember, he's writing to first century Jewish Christians. Uh, And they may have witnessed the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., Uh, I don't think he really needed to remind them of what was in the temple as if they had forgotten, but he was really highlighting where he was going to be focusing his attention and where the Old Covenant and New Covenant um, has this comparison and contrast. But in this verse, he says regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. But when he goes through in the following verses, he's going to take those in the opposite order. He's going to look at the sanctuary and then the ministry. So let's see what he says about the tabernacle. It says in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. So this first room is called the holy place. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the sanctuary. This was where the priests performed their regular ministerial duties. We can read about the table and the lampstand in Exodus 25, starting in verse 23. Uh, Now this is a long quote here from Exodus 25. He says you are to construct a table of acacia wood thirty six inches long, eighteen inches wide, and twenty seven inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding all around it. Make a three inch frame all around it and make gold molding for all its fr- uh, for it all its frame. Make four gold rings for it and attach the rings to the four corners at its four legs. The rings should be next to the frame as holders for the poles to carry the table. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table can be carried by them. Now we, we read about these rings and the poles. If you remember, the tabernacle was like a, a mobile temple. And so these rings were there, they're kind of molded into the side of it and they would slide the poles through and then they could carry it uh, a lot easier. Um, let's see. You are also to make its plates and cups as well as its pitchers and bowls for pouring the drink offerings. Make them out of pure gold. Put the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. You are to make a lampstand out of pure hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece, its base and its shaft, its ornamental cups and its buds and petals. Six branches are to extend from its sides three branches of the one lampstand and one, uh, sorry, three branches of the lampstand from one side and three branches of the lampstand from the other side. We call that a menorah, right? It's got the central pole and then three branches coming out on each side. Uh, "...there are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on one branch, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on the next branch. It is to be this way for the six branches that extend from the lampstand. There are to be four four cups shaped like almond blossoms on the lampstand's shaft along with its buds and petals." For the six branches that extend from the lampstand, a bud must be under the first pair of branches from it, a bud under the second pair of branches from it, and a bud under the third pair of branches from it. Their buds and branches are to be of one piece, and it is to be be a single hammered piece of pure gold. Make its seven lamps and set them up so that they illuminate the area in front of it. Its snuffers and firepans must be of pure gold. The lampstand with all these utensils is to be made from 75 pounds of pure gold. Be careful to make them according to the pattern you have been shown on the mountain. Woo All right, so here's a picture of what this holy place might have looked like. If you didn't already know, these verses make it clear that the tabernacle included a lot of gold. There's a lot of gold there. And the reason for all this gold is that gold has this really interesting quality that sets it apart from most other metals. See, gold does not corrode, it does not oxidize, and it does not rust. Gold is a very chemically stable metal. This quality was recognized very early in history and is why gold has been given so much value in both ancient and modern civilizations. But this purity of gold was chosen to reflect God's holiness his perfect, unchanging character. Then the last thing mentioned uh, in verse two is the presentation loaves. Now the presentation loaves uh, more information about those can be found in Leviticus 24, five through9. But since I just read that other long quote, I'll just summarize this Leviticus passage for you. Uh, there were 12 there were supposed to be 12 loaves of unleavened bread, and the bread was to be just outside of the Holy of Holies this close proximity to the presence of God caused the holiness from the presence of God to kind of rub off on that bread. This was a uh, a, a, a grain offering to God. Um, and the, the presentation bread was to be um, changed out every week on the Sabbath. But then after it sat out there for a week, this presentation bread, it could not leave the, the holy place. It could not leave the sanctuary because it was holy. And so before that bread left the sanctuary, the priests had to eat it. Um, now, there's an interesting story in First Samuel 21 where David actually breaks this command. It was only the priests who were allowed to eat this bread, but David breaks that command. Then Jesus mentions that story about David uh, in Luke 6, which if you're in our Bible reading plan that we're, that many of us are doing together, we read about that this week. And if you'd like to join those Bible reading plans that we do, first, you need the Bible app, uh, which is free for all devices. Uh, And then any time that I start a new plan, I send out an invitation to everybody who's friended me on there. So um, you can join us on the next one if you want to. But if we look at this picture here, uh, so on the right side of the picture, that's the sanctuary or the holy place. And then you see there's this, this giant wall with a veil. Now, in the picture, the veil is gold. But in reality, the the veil was not gold. It was uh, blue and purple, and it had uh, pictures of uh, angels there on it. Um, But there's this wall and this veil there, these giant curtains. Um, That takes us into the holy of holies, or the most holy place. There's a room back there. And if we keep reading, the author here of Hebrews talks about that room as well. It says, Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had a gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. uh, Sorry, tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. So he says, Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Most Holy Place. So this curtain was made of fine blue linen and had cherubim embroidered on it. In the Old Testament, the cherubim, these are angels, they're, they're um, depicted as guardians of a sacred space. These cherubim embroidered on the curtains served as a warning for people to keep out, right? This curtain separated the most holy place, or we, we've also heard it called the holy of holies, from the rest of the temple complex. So why, you know, holy of holies and most holy place. So basically, when you're looking at the Hebrew language, they didn't have a regular pattern for comparative and superlative adjectives, right? Where we would think good, better, best, right? They didn't have anything like that. So in order to say that something was better, they would just repeat that adjective again. Or to say that it was best, they would repeat the adjective a third time. So when we hear the holy of holies, it's saying that it is holier than the place that preceded it. So the, the larger room was called the holy place, and then this uh, closer place, the, the holier place, was the holy of holies. So we translate that, either holy of holies, because in the Hebrew it would have been put that, that holy would be there twice. Uh, so we translate that holy of holies, but to make it more understandable, some people will also translate that as the most holy place. But it's the same thing. All right. So the curtain separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple complex. The Holy of Holies was the innermost chamber of the tabernacle. And uh, later, it was, you know, the innermost chamber of the temple. It contained only the the two gold inlaid cherubim, an altar for burning incense, and the Ark of the Covenant. And we can read about the Ark of the Covenant, again, back in Exodus 25, uh, verses 10 through 22. It says, They are to make an ark of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it both inside and out. Also make a gold molding all around it. Cast four gold rings and place them on its feet, two rings on each side and two rings on the other side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the, pole, insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. Right, so again, we see these poles where they could carry the ark, um, not only with the Ark of the Covenant, not only would that make it easier to carry, it also allowed them to carry it without actually touching the the Ark of the Covenant. There's a story in the Old Testament where they were moving the Ark of the Covenant from one place to another, and they had it on a wagon, and one of the cattle stumbled, and the Ark started to fall off, and one of the priests reached up to try to catch it and and keep it on the cart. Well, he's not allowed to touch it, so as soon as he touched it, he dropped dead. So they had these poles to keep them from touching the Ark. Uh, Let's see. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long and 25... Uh, inches, 20, 27 inches wide, make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. At its two ends, make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim are to have wings spread out above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they are to face one another. The faces of the cherubim should be toward the mercy seat. Set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. So we hear about this mercy seat. That was the lid of the the Ark of the the Covenant. And on that, there was a throne and two uh, angels uh, there on top of it. I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. So here again, we've got a picture of what the Ark of the Covenant might have looked like. Uh, We see more gold and more angels. The mercy seat sat on top of the ark, uh, and it symbolized God's throne of grace that we talked about back in Hebrews 4.16. But according to Old Testament law, nobody was allowed to go into this most holy place. So you have this beautiful Ark of the Covenant in there, and nobody was allowed to go in there except for one person on one day of the year. The high priest was allowed to go into this most holy place only on the, uh, the Day of Atonement. See, on this day, on the day of atonement, God's presence appeared in a cloud over the mercy seat, So right, right above where these two angels are, over the, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence came like a cloud and hovered over that. Um, the inner room symbolized the presence of God, and therefore was considered to be powerfully holy. In researching for this sermon, I came across a piece of church tr- uh, a piece of church pr- tr- 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 a piece of church tradition that I told you about last week. Right? So again, I'm looking at this and, and this, this, um, this comes up again. Now again, we don't really have any hard historical evidence for this, but there is a lot of tradition and a kind of hearsay about it. So it seems like it's probable that it happened, but we can't actually prove it. So um, on the high priest's robe, he had all these bells sewn in around the belt line. Now that is part of what, what's described in the Bible. That way, when he's in there, in this most holy place, as he's moving around doing his high priestly duties on the day of atonement, you could hear the little bells chiming as he's walking around in there. But then if the bells stopped chiming or you hear this thud and then the bells aren't chiming anymore, well, it seems like the high priest might have dropped dead because if he was to go into this most holy place without following the law exactly, then God could strike him dead because God's holiness is amazingly powerful. God's holiness cannot be in the presence of sin, and so if this high priest goes into this room without following the letter of the law exactly, he could be punished with immediate death. So, if you've got a a dead high priest in the holy of holies, and nobody's allowed to go in there except for the the high priest who's going to follow him the next year, a year later, well, then you've got a dead body in there, and that's that's not good. So. Church tradition tells us that they ended up tying a rope around his ankle so that when he would go into the the Holy of Holies, if he were to drop dead, right, if the other priests sitting outside, if they heard those bells stop chiming for too long, then they'd give a little tug on that rope. And then, you know, if the rope didn't start to tug back, then they'd start dragging that body out. Again, we don't really know for sure that that's actually what was going on, but there's enough evidence around it that it seems to be probable that that's what was going on at least at some point in, the, in uh, Jewish history. But the author says something really interesting next. He says it's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Well, like I said, these are first century Jewish Christians. Many of them may have actually seen the destruction of the temple when Rome came in and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. So why would he not be able to speak about these things in detail? Seems like they would have a, a pretty good memory of it. Well, this is because in the post-exilic period, when God commanded the Israelites to rebuild the temple, we spent all last year talking about this in that sermon series last year. When God commanded the Israelites to rebuild the temple, the Ark of the Covenant was not put back in the temple. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and ransacked the temple, that would be the last time the Ark of the Covenant would be in the most holy place. But the author is referring back to a time when the Ark of the Covenant was there. All right. So he says, uh, we're going to keep reading. Uh, With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry, but the high priest alone enters the second room and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people, uh, for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So it says the priests enter this first room repeatedly. Well, this points to the fact that this was an ongoing ministry, right? The lamps had to be continually burning. The priests had it, so they had to attend to these lampstands, make sure that there was enough oil in the lamp to keep it burning. They had to trim the wicks to make sure that they didn't go out. Every day, according to Exodus 29, every day, twice a day, the priests had to go into this first room to make a sacrifice. They had to sacrifice a lamb in the morning. They had to sacrifice another lamb in the evening, every day. So this happens every day. This was this repeatedly, this perpetual ministry It was the ongoing work of the priests because these sacrifices they weren 't powerful; there, there was no actual power in them, and so they were there as a symbol of what was going to be coming next. There was no power in them, so they had to keep doing it. And then it says the high priest enters the second room sorry, but the high priest alone enters the second room, he does only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people who had com- the sins the people had committed in ignorance. <laughs> I've already mentioned several times this morning and over the past few weeks that only the high priest was allowed to enter this most holy place and only once a year. But this text adds a new detail that we haven't discussed much. Before the priest can enter this most holy place, he must first make a blood sacrifice. And this is described back in Leviticus chapter 16. Starting in verse 3, it says, Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. He is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. Next, he will take the two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. After Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for an uninhabitable place, he is to present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. So if you continue to read through Leviticus 16, you see a lot of blood being spilled on the day of atonement. This blood emphasized, in, is emphasized in the remainder of Hebrews. Both in the the Mosaic Covenant and in the New Covenant, they are enacted with blood. It was these sacrifices that allowed the priest to enter the Most Holy Place. But we read back in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 that Jesus entered this inner room on our behalf. He did this through the power of his own blood. Jesus' sacrifice is the ultimate sacrifice, making atonement for our sins. He only needed to do this once because his sacrifice was powerful enough to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future, for all believers of all time. When we place our faith in him, our sins are forgiven, and we are given access to God's presence. Matthew 27, 51 tells us that the curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in half from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. This curtain that separated the the holy place from the most holy place Some scholars say it was up to 18 inches thick. That's a thick curtain. So just to be torn in in half from top to bottom is pretty intense. But it says that when Jesus died on the cross, this veil separating the the holy place from the most most holy place was torn in half, giving access to the presence of God for all believers. Our sin separates us from God, but Jesus' sacrifice draws us near to him. The old covenant could not open God's presence to the people, but it could only keep them separated. The new covenant, though, through Jesus' blood, fixes that problem for us. The old covenant was merely a symbol or foreshadowing of the new covenant that God would make. We read about that, picking up in verse 8. It says, The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the, the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. So it says the Holy Spirit was making it clear, was making something very clear. It was making it clear that all of this, this Mosaic covenant and all this sacrifice and all this, this pageantry that, was, that we find in the Old Covenant, it was all a symbol of, of the coming new covenant, the author is saying that the presence of God is not accessible under the old covenant. We already discussed that in the, in the previous section, and when, then we spent two weeks talking about teleosis. Right, the teleosis is the qualifications required to draw near to God. The Old Testament priests could not meet those qualifications to draw the Israelites near to God. Now we see that the Old Testament law could not do that either. The most holy place, the holy of holies, was the presence of God. And through the Mosaic Covenant, that presence of God was still closed off to the people. It was not available to them. It says this is a symbol for the present time. This is a symbol for the present time. The system of worship that was established in the Mosaic Covenant was not, uh, was not sufficient to produce true sanctification. It was not sufficient to produce peace because the offerings had to be made <coughs> continually. It was merely a symbol or a model of the new covenant sacrifice that Jesus made. Back in middle school, I used to make, uh, I used to build these model cars. My favorite one is a 67 Chevy Impala. And I cut the top off of it to make it like a convertible. Right? And I spent a good bit of time. You know, those models, they, they take a little bit of time to put together and, and you paint them and you, you glue it all together. I really enjoyed doing that. And that was my favorite one. It was this little 67 Chevy Impala convertible. Well, I had made a convertible. But that was obviously in middle school. I didn't actually own a 67 Chevy Impala. And I didn't actually go and, and get a 67 Chevy Impala and cut the roof off of it and make, make it a convertible. This is just a model of something that was really cool out there something that I wanted. You know, I wanted that real thing. and I wouldn't mind having one now. It's a pretty cool car. But it was just a model of something out there that was really cool, right? This old covenant is a lot like that and how it represents the new covenant. It's, it's, it's got some physical or some, some surface level similarities. It, but it points to the real thing. It's not the real thing. It doesn't hold the value of the real thing. Does it have some value? Absolutely. That little model car that I had in middle school, it had a lot of value to me because I had spent the time to put it together and it meant a lot to me. But for other people, it didn't have nearly that much value. And this old system, this old covenant, the Mosaic covenant is like that. There's some value in it, absolutely. But it doesn't hold nearly the value of the new covenant because this old covenant is just a model showing some similarities to this new covenant. It's a, it's a model showing what was going to be coming. In the new covenant, through Jesus' blood, Jesus' blood purifies us of our sin guilt and provides that assurance to believers. Because of that purity, the teleosis, the drawing near to God, has been achieved. Jesus has made the presence of God available for all who believe in Him. So what application do we get from this text? My application is always drawn from our definition of a disciple, which we get from Matthew four nineteen, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. When Jesus says, follow me, this is the disciple has, has made this decision to follow Jesus. This is a knowing part. So our first indicator of a disciple is knowing. And then where Jesus says, I will make, he's remaking us from the inside out, from our heart level out. And so this is our being uh, indicator of a disciple. And then the doing is where Jesus says that the disciple will be fishing for people. All right, So our do application, our, our do indicator comes right from there. And our application points come from those, the knowing, being, and doing. So our first application, the know, is to know that Jesus is greater than the Mosaic Covenant. Under the Mosaic Covenant, people could not access the presence of God. God's presence was locked away in the most holy place in the center of the tabernacle. Only the high priest could enter there once a year and only after a blood sacrifice. But Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. He made his blood sacrifice perfect. For us, when He died on the cross, the veil to the most holy place was torn in half from top to bottom. This means that any who believe in Him can have access to the presence of God. Any who believe in Him will be ushered into the presence of God, and that's our B application: to be ushered into the presence of God. And this takes that this application from knowing that Jesus is greater than the Mosaic covenant and brings it down to the heart. We place our faith in Him, and we are ushered into the presence of God. Place your faith in him and stop trying to earn your access into God's presence. If the sacrifices of the old covenant were not good enough to do it, then our own efforts won't do it either. We were created to be in God's presence. But because of our sin, we are separated from God. Through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus' blood, Jesus giving himself on the cross, our sins are atoned for. By placing your faith in him, he opens God's presence to us and ushers us into the presence of God. Jesus has torn the veil and ushers believers into God's presence. <clears throat> and our due application is to spend time in God's presence. See, under the old covenant, the high priest could only enter into the, into the presence of God once a year. Christians now have unlimited access to God's presence through Jesus' sacrifice. So our due application is to spend time each day in God's presence, or several times a day in God's presence, focus on being, just being with God, spending that time with him. We can do that through prayer. We can do that through Bible study. We can do that through listening to worship music. One of my favorite ways to do this is just to spend some some quiet time out in God's beautiful creation. See, in our new yard, back behind the house, we've got some woods, and I've cut a path down there, and I can just be by myself in the woods next to the creek. Now, I wish it was quieter. We are right there next to 301, so we get a good bit of road noise, but it's just me, out there in God's creation, spending time with Him. So our due application is to spend time in God's presence. Don't rush through that. I'm, I can be pretty guilty of that myself. In the mornings going through my quiet time, I read my Bible and I do my prayer, and, and I, I kinda, sometimes I, I'm guilty of just kind of checking those boxes and, and getting it done instead of spending that time, quality time, just abiding with God, spending that quality time in His presence. So our application points again is to know that Jesus is greater than the Mosaic Covenant, to be ushered into God's presence, and to spend time in God's presence. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that you've given a way for us to come back into your presence, come back to where we were created to be. Lord, I pray that you will help us to long for that time with you. Help us to to long for a quality relationship with you, spending that good time with you, Lord. Help us not to rush through that time. Father, I pray that if there's any here who do not know you, who are not in that presence with you, I pray that you will prick their hearts and draw them close to you through Jesus's blood. In Jesus name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit victorybaptisthopemills.com or facebook.com slash mills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.